I'm going to miss that video bumper when this series is over. I love, it gets me fired up every time. How are you this morning? Good. Good, man. It's great to be back home with you. Julie and I were out of town last week, and I don't want you to think that I was playing around or anything. We were at uh, Church by the Glades down in Fort Lauderdale area, and I preached seven times in 18 hours last week. I just woke up yesterday. It was unbelievable. It's a great church. It's so good to get to be there with David and Lisa Hughes. And I want to take just a quick second, if you would, will you join me in saying a massive thank you to our very own Pastor Terry Cadwell, who brought the word last week. I love me some Terry Cadwell. He and Patsy are such a blessing to our church family and to me personally. I just, I love that they're a part of our family and our team. Terry is my pastor, and uh, I'm just so grateful that his wisdom and years of experience are a part of who we are and a part of what happens around here. Also, I want to echo what Julie alluded to just a second ago uh, in the announcements. Tonight, you do not want to miss the first ever Lake Hills Church Easter Rally. It is going to be one for the ages. And this is for all ages, by the way, from three years old and up. We want them in here in the service. We're going to start it right at 6 o'clock. We have child care for birth through two years old, but three years and up. This is a family-friendly event, obviously for everybody in the church family. And we hope that you'll be here tonight at 6 o'clock as we get ready for Easter, which is next weekend. I want to show you something real quick. Can we bring up the Easter times? Let me show you something about our Easter services. We're going to do five services next weekend. Friday at 6 o'clock, Saturday at 6 o'clock, and then on Sunday, 9 10:15 and 11:45. Now let me just give you a little churchology real quick. Keep that up there if you don't mind. Please. Now, on a regular Sunday, we've got about, I don't know, 1100, 1200 seats in here. And we'll next weekend we're going to bring in 2 or 300 extra seats. And normally from weekend to weekend, we'll have between 1500 and 2000 people depending on the weekend and where the Longhorns play and all that kind of stuff. But that's what happens normally. Next Sunday, there will be 5 to 6000 people who want to come into church and discover and celebrate Easter with us, which we are so excited about. But let me show you something. You see Sunday at 10:15? That's where all of them are coming. <laughs> 4,000 people will be fighting for 1,400 seats in here next Sunday. So what that means is, if you are part of the Lake Hills Church family, if you are spiritually mature, if you want to go to heaven, you're not coming to church at 10:15 next Sunday morning, all right? I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm teasing, kind of, because here's the deal. There are so many people who don't yet know how much God loves them, and so I know you're inviting them. I know hundreds of you have already signed up to serve Sunday morning and are coming Friday night or Saturday night, and I'm so incredibly grateful to you, but I cannot tell you how important it is. If you, listen, if today's your first time, you're a long timer around here. You're part of the team, so that means... <laughs> That if, listen, if you are in surgery or jail Friday or Saturday night, you maybe can come at 11.45 on Sunday. Maybe, with a note from the warden or the surgeon. But 9 and 10.15, I'm begging you with everything I have to come to a service not 9 or 10.15 so that we make room for our guests, so that we make room for the people that we are put here to try to reach. And I know. We've got family coming in and brunch and there's the bunny. Listen, this is why God, listen, the first thing we know about God, in the beginning God created, thank you, both of you, God created. <laughs> and then we know that God created us in his image, which means we're all creative. 
So get creative with your Easter. I'm a pastor. When my kids were much, much younger, the Easter bunny came on Thursday. Well, that was just kind of how we rolled at our house. So just get creative and make room for the people that you know who don't yet know how extravagantly God loves them. That's what this Easter celebration, this is our gift and our opportunity to share this with as many people as we can. And in advance, thank you for being that kind of a church and those kind of people. So that's, that's enough about that. Tell you what, as we dive into the message together, let's go to God with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, it is great. It's not just good. It is great to be in your house, to be gathered together as the family of faith. And I pray, Father, that you will use this time for your purposes. God, for your glory, but also for our good. We ask, God, that you will speak into our lives personally and collectively as a church family. Use this time, God. Use us in the days and the week ahead for your purposes. We pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, the one who makes it all possible. And everybody said, amen. I can't point to a specific day because it, it happened very, very gradually. But it was about 10 years ago, right around the time that I was turning 40 years old, that my eyes started to go. Does anybody else understand that dynamic? Anybody else? I mean, that just happened. It was like all of a sudden. And for me, it wasn't like most people, you know, you need the readers or the cheaters because you're you know, kind of doing this when you start to read the menu or whatever. For me, it was stuff at a distance. And I didn't even recognize it at first. Julie, my wife, Julie was the one who was like, I, she was like, you need to go to the doctor. I was like, no, I don't. I've got 20-20 eyes. I could be a pilot, <laughs> sweetheart. But she said, honey, you're squinting at everything. You squint to read the TV at the ESPN ticker at the bottom. Or like if we're looking at a, at a menu board in a restaurant, you're always squinting trying to make it happen. And I was like, so? And finally, I swallowed my male ego pride and, and went to see the ophthalmologist. And sure enough, your pastor needed glasses. And, I mean, I put those things on like, Vroom. oh, I mean, I started seeing it was unbelievable. Well, I had developed over time what, what's commonly called nearsightedness. The ophthalmologist called it myopia. Who knew? Myopia. And what happens with myopia or nearsightedness is that the lens of your eye focuses what you're looking at just in front of the retina. It, the image doesn't get all the way back to the retina. Instead of focusing it on the retina in the back of your eyeball, it focuses it just in front of it. So things up close, I can still read great up close, but it was the big picture. It was the things in the distance that were getting blurry. I have discovered that unless we are really, really deliberate, uh, unless we are really, really intentional about it, Every single one of us is vulnerable to a very, very real spiritual myopia. What I mean by that is we can get so focused on the here and now and the details and what's right in front of us that we lose sight of the bigger picture, the bigger mission that God has called us to in life. And the fact of the matter is that every single one of us is created in the image of God for a purpose from God. You were created. I was created to fulfill a purpose. 
I had a chance just recently, I, I had a cup of coffee with a guy who's actually a retired Navy SEAL. One of the most gracious, kindest guys I've ever talked to in my life. I was sitting there having coffee with him. I was going, this guy is so nice. But don't forget, he could kill you. <laughs> that was just in the back of my mind the whole time. And we were talking about this mission minutiae. And he said, Mac, he said, I'll tell you something interesting. He said, when I was in the teams, my favorite job of everything I got to do, my favorite job was as a platoon commander. He said, I loved the guys in my platoon. I loved getting to know them about their families, what made them tick, and figuring out kind of how to motivate each one of them. And he said, be totally honest with you, too. Platoon commander, when you're part of a platoon, you get to play with some of the coolest toys on the planet. The stuff that we got to shoot and blow up, that was my favorite part of being in the teams was when I was a platoon commander. But when I got promoted beyond platoon commander, I had to learn a very, very difficult lesson that it was no longer enough to just be aware of what was going on in front of me. I had to step back and remember the mission that we were responsible for overall. He said, every, he said I learned this in... in battle reviews. Every time I was looking down a barrel, it meant that I was missing the battlefield. I thought, whoa, how profound. Every time you're looking down a barrel, you're missing the battlefield. I thought about parenting. How many of you are parents in that? If you're a mom or a dad, man, it, it's, a, it's a battlefield of love, but can we just be honest? It's a, it can be a battlefield sometimes, am I right? And man, when you're in the vortex of parenting, when you're in that moment with that, with that defiant toddler or teenager, it's very, very easy to forget the mission at large. You know, you, you forget that this little bundle of blessing God has entrusted to us to prepare them for the world and to help do that, to remind them they are not the center of the universe. Would somebody help me preach? I just say, it's just, it's easy to forget that sometimes. I remember when Emily and Joseph were little, especially when they were right, right around three years old. It's always been fascinating. Whoever coined the, the term the terrible twos, they never had a three-year-old. Two is easy compared to three. With something about them, when they turn three, man, they push every button and boundary available. And early on in my parenting career, I, I would get into that vortex, and I'd be like, I am not losing to something that small. It was so frustrating. And then I remembered, oh, wait, the mission the, the overall mission, this little bundle of blessing was born with the depravity of humanity imprinted on her soul, on his soul. And, and my job as a parent is to help them discover Christ and the power and the freedom from that depravity. And, and so when I remembered that broader mission, I could kind of step back and remove emotion and I could kind of go, okay. How are we going to help little princess or little prince get to where God wants them to be through this learning experience? And what I noticed is at the same time God was working on me and showing me how he wanted to get me to where he wanted me to be because I have not arrived yet. Tell your neighbor like you mean it, I haven't arrived. Some of you found that a little difficult to say. Some of you found it difficult to not shout amen when that person told you they haven't arrived. And that's a, that's a whole other issue. But over the last few weeks, as we've kind of taken up this subject of mission or a vision, a calling from God, we've been looking at it through the lens of the biblical and historical narrative of Nehemiah. 
And today we're going to kind of bring Nehemiah in for a landing. But as we do, there are four critical practices that Nehemiah led Israel to incorporate into their lifestyle, into their day-to-day living that helped them remain tethered to the mission God had for them. Specifically, Nehemiah was interested in helping Israel to remember their identity, their identity as the people of God, the called out nation that God had selected by hand, by name, to literally be a blessing to the whole world. And out of that identity, to allow that identity to drive their activity. See, a lot of times we get that sequence mixed up. And and it's easy to do. Because activity, we've all got things we've got to do. We've got places we've got to be, people we've got to see. But the fact of the matter is we've got to understand our identity and allow our identity to drive our activity. If we allow our activity to determine our identity, then we're going to get the identity part messed up every single time. Four things for Israel, four things for you and me in this world to use to tether our activity to our identity, to understanding. For Nehemiah, it wasn't just about the walls being rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem. That was the project that was in place. But it was ultimately about reestablishing Israel's identity as the people of God. If you've got your Bibles, look at Nehemiah chapter number 12. In Nehemiah chapter 12, the walls have been rebuilt. The gates have been put in place. And now it's time for Jerusalem to again become Jerusalem. They had begun the process of repopulating, resettling the city of Jerusalem. But look at what it says in verse 27 and 28. For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. The Levites were the priests. They were the the ministers of the word of God. And they were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres, and fender telecasters and basses. That's, That's in the Hebrew. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. Those Netophathites. But Nehemiah is reminding Israel, whatever you do and wherever you go, lead with worship. That your life is to be an expression of worship. This this collective community singing of lifting up the name of God, of praising and worshiping God. And man, they did it up big at this point. This was a massive milestone. And so what Nehemiah did was he brought together all of the choirs and and the vocalists and the musicians, and he split them into two groups. And he sent them out one gate of the walls of Jerusalem. One group went to the left, one group went to the right, and they conducted this holy parade of praise all the way around the city of Jerusalem. One group singing this song, one group singing that song. When they came back around to each other, they went up to the temple, and there they continued to worship. It's this idea of lifting up your voices and singing collectively as the people of God. That's one of the beautiful things about church. You may not be able to carry a tune in a number three wash tub like your pastor, and that's okay. The fact of the matter is, in this place, that's celebrated. 
Nowhere else in the world will somebody tell you, man, let it fly. If you can't sing well, people are like, hey, why don't you just kind of keep that in the shower or your car? But here we know that the command of God is to make a joyful noise to the Lord. So when we tease from time to time about, you know, being tardy for church or not being here on time, it's not just because it's a distraction to other people. It's because you're missing out on, on part of our calling as a family is to sing, to lift up the name of God and to, to let it fly with everything that you've got, to worship. And, and man, check your cool at the door. You can be cool at lunch, but when we come together as a family, we praise God, we worship Him, we lift Him up, and it's a celebration. And Nehemiah is reminding Israel, this is your primary role on the planet, is to worship God. Some of you may have grown up Presbyterian, and you'll remember the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the, the catechism that is a series of questions and answers to help people, especially children, remember the essentials of the Christian faith. The very first item in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him always, forever. That, that's, that's why we're here. So it's about worship. It's about letting our songs, letting our voices lift up the name that is above every name, this same Jesus. It's worship. But they weren't back for long before Nehemiah started to notice kind of a, a concerning, a, a troubling trend, if you will. Because they had, they had been back, they had had this parade of praise, but then there was, there was another, another discipline, another pattern that they were allowing to already kind of let slip and slide by the way. Look at Nehemiah 13, verse 11 and 12. He said, I immediately confronted the leaders and I demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and I restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain new wine and olive oil to the temple storerooms. So it begins with worship, but he says the other thing that you're going to do to, to keep the mission in mind is you're going, to, you're going to bring the tithe to honor God as your provider, the one who gives you everything that you've got. Now you know probably for Israel, just like for us, there were some people like, whoa, 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 whoa. God gave me everything I've got? I work hard for my money, Jack. What, what do you mean, God? And I get it. I understand that. But who gave you the ability to earn? Who gave you the mind that you have? It all comes from God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Say everything. 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 It's all God's anyway. And so when God gives you 100% of everything that you've got, 10% back to him is a fraction to be reminded that, oh, yeah, he's God. I'm not. And, and he's provided all of my needs, a lot of my wants. You know, early on in the life of our church, I, I, was, a little, I was a little bit reluctant to preach the tithe because I know people get funny about money. Tell your neighbor, people get funny. I, I know that. People, you know, defenses are up, but, but what I discovered is if I didn't teach the biblical principle of the tithe, people didn't tithe. I mean, it was funny how that worked out that way. 
And it wasn't that God wasn't providing for our church. It wasn't that at all. God's going to get done what God wants to get done. God doesn't need the tithe. God knows we need to tithe. We need to make that statement of faith every two weeks or whatever your paycheck looks like. So it's a statement of faith that says, I'm going to give this first fruits. Look at what Nehemiah said. Once more, all the people, say all. all. All the people began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil. It's that first fruits. So that, that first check that Julie and I write, or for us, you know, it's the electronic draft or however that, you know, we, we've prayed about it, we've talked about it, but it's that first part. We, we don't pay our bills and then hope there's enough to left over. And we've done this since before we were married, we started doing this. And we have never, ever seen God insufficient. We have never seen him unfaithful to his promise of the tithe. So Nehemiah says, worship. Nehemiah says, tithe. But then there was another, another problem that was starting to kind of crop up there in, in Jerusalem amongst God's people. This was a problem of a much more, what should we call this? Let's call this a, a much more exotic distraction, if you will. You see, what happened was they, they rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. They started to repopulate it, and, and things started to go kind of well, and they started to interact with other cities and other nations, and they started to see how other people were living, and they they were like, well, wait a minute, there's some, there's some other ways that you can worship. And, and quite frankly, they you know, a little more fun, a little more pleasurable. And if we marry into those religions and into those other things, then, then that's, that's a lot more fun. And, and look at what Nehemiah said about this. Verse 26 of Nehemiah 13, he said, Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin, I demanded? There was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? Now let me be quick to let you make sure that you understand. Nehemiah is not being a racist here, okay? It's not about foreign or domestic. It's about compatibility. Because by marrying these women who were outside the people of faith, they were compromising and watering down and walking away from the faith that they had been called to. And God knew, God knew that for Israel and for you and me, the tip of the spear is the family. The tip of the spear is the family. Fathers and mothers rearing children in a God-centered home as a part of the family of faith and the community of Christ. Rearing them and raising them up, partnering with the church. But it's about the family. So there was, there was worship, there was tithe, and, and there was family. And Nehemiah was like, no, don't, don't go down that road. It's interesting that he references King Solomon. Solomon was a fascinating cat. The wisest person to ever live. And yet, Solomon eventually walked away from his faith. And the reason that he walked away from his faith was real simple. 
Solomon had a massive appetite for women. I mean massive appetite for women. 300 wives. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. 300 wives. And 700 concubines. That is an appetite that I think any of us would acknowledge has definitely given way to gluttony. I mean, that's unbelievable. But that was Solomon. And it was that appetite that drew him away from God, the God that he had prayed to give him wisdom. Lord, of all the things I would ask for, I would ask that you would give me wisdom, and God gave it to him. But it was his appetite that overcame his wisdom. And it ruined his family. The family that God had called out and chosen, not only to lead Israel, but also to speak into the larger world. But, but there's, there's one more thing that Nehemiah addresses here in Nehemiah 13. Look at verse 19. Nehemiah 13, verse 19 and 22. He said, Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then I commanded the Levites, the priests, to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. That, that the Sabbath was so important. You'll remember the Sabbath is so important. It's even part of the Ten Commandments. Commandment. Those aren't suggestions. The Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Keep it set apart. Keep it sanctified no matter what team sports do. Remember the Sabbath. It's there in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath. Sabbath is actually a verb in the Hebrew language. It's Shabbat. It means that we don't observe the Sabbath. We Sabbath. 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 Tell your neighbor, get your Sabbath on. You know something interesting we learned when we were in Israel this last time? We were there over a Saturday, which is, of course in Israel is the Sabbath, and it's still very, very strictly, not exclusively, but strictly observed. And as you meet people or greet them in the morning, they don't say, you know, Bokatov or Shalom. They say, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Tell your neighbor, Shabbat Shalom. Congratulations on being now fluent in Hebrew. Shabbat Shalom means the peace of the Sabbath. That, that, that there's, there's the peace of God that happens when we Sabbath. When we bring together the, the material and the physical drive of the whole week with the spiritual connection with God and we, we interact both and, and we choose to rest from our labors as God rested from his labors, which is interesting to me because do you think God needed to take a knee for a day? Did you, was God really just like, whoo, creating thing, I am winded. No, he, he did it as an example for us. He did it as an example, and yet, man, 
We have to work, don't we? To have a day in the week where we do nothing. Nothing. We worship. We, we celebrate maybe a family meal or a meal with friends. But, but we're not answering emails from the office. We're, we're not doing homework. We're, we're not, we're, we're, we're Sabbathing. It's, it's to be set apart and holy. And so Nehemiah says, just four things, four things. If you will worship, if, you, if you'll tithe, if you'll honor the family, and you'll Sabbath, man, you, you'll, stay, you, you'll stay tethered to the mission God has for us. I'm pretty sure that would work right now. If we would make worship a priority, if we would tithe regularly, if we would honor the family, no matter where we are in life, no matter what our marital status might be, but we would honor family, and we would Sabbath. Wow. You see, mission myopia clutters life. It's when we pull back and remember the broader mission, the vision, calling that God has on our lives, that our lives are clarified. And when our lives are clarified, man, the lives are simplified. We, we simplify our calendars. We, we remember those four things and we're like, you know what, that's going to help me eliminate a lot of clutter, a lot of, a lot of junk on my calendar. Forget the garage, I'm just talking about it on my calendar. But it's this mission, it's this, this vision that God has called us to. If you'll remember, Nehemiah was trying to keep Israel tethered to their identity. The identity that God had, had given to Abraham when he called him out and he said, you will be the father of a great nation. And Abraham was like 90, 95 years old and he was like, God, we don't have any kids I'm old. My wife's beautiful, but she's old. God was like, don't worry. I got this. I got this. And it was from Abraham that the nation of Israel was born, from that, from that family committed to making a difference. And it's interesting that God promised Abraham he would bless all the nations of the world through his family. God said, I, I will bless every nation on earth through you. Not only did God promise that, but where he promised it and the context within which he promised it is interesting. It was, it was in that moment that Abraham was sacrificing his son Isaac. Now we know the story, of course, at the end, God stayed the hand of Abraham. He said, don't take your son's life. He said, I just needed you to see that you were faithful. And it was because of that faithfulness of Abraham that God promised to bless all nations of the earth. It's, it's in Genesis, Genesis 22. 
Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. It's a powerful moment. And for those of you scoring at home, the place where Abraham offered to sacrifice his son was a, was a little mound of rock called Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah would later become the centerpiece of Jerusalem, the city of God. the epicenter of the identity of God's people. And isn't it interesting that God would commend Abraham for not sparing his only son? Sixteen, seventeen hundred years before, God did not spare his own son. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him would never die but would have eternal life. That's our vision. That's our mission. Not just to get a lot of people to come to church next week on Easter, but to do everything we can to see a lot of people in heaven because we have fulfilled the calling of God on our lives. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, we're going to conclude today a little differently than we normally do. But we're going to pray. A prayer of conclusion to this series, but also a prayer of beginning. renewing and refreshing the commitment that we have to the vision God has called us to. Our Father and our God, this morning we worship you. God, we thank you for the historical, biblical account of Nehemiah that, that shows us so, so much about a calling about leadership, followership. Overcoming opposition. Faithfulness, identity, mission, work. All of these things. that are consumed in you. All of these things that you bless, that you make good. 
And so, Father, this morning as a church, we recommit ourselves to being your people. Father, to fulfilling the vision and the calling you have on us as a church family and, God, to us individually. Father, we pray for the rally tonight that you would be glorified and honored. And God, that in next week's Easter celebration, as we lift up the name of Jesus, that you would draw people to you, to forgiveness, to peace, to belonging, to the life that is truly life. Father, this is our prayer in the name of Jesus who makes it all possible. And as a family, we say together, amen.